Thank you very much for asking me to the Indian Traces in Oxford event, and, uh, 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 and thanks to the Making Britain uh, overarching organisation. It's very nice to, to talk. I'm not, I haven't often talked about my aunt, though I dare say I will start now. The first picture is the earliest one I have of her. Um, it's um, uh, from 1888 to 1889 when, when she was waiting in India to see whether or not she would get the scholarship which did bring her to Oxford in the end. Um, uh, Elika mentioned my book, um, uh, uh, that's the cover. Um, but of course, she wrote her own autobiography, which is very fascinating, I think. But what I found is that uh, half of what happened, she had to leave out of it because it was too sensitive in various ways, sensitive in so many directions. The identities are concealed of her Perdanishine clients, the um, uh, behavior, often very decent by colonial standards, but sometimes uh, really the worst of public schoolboy behavior of uh, British civil servants, which is very seldom known about. Um, th there were many things, uh, her own personal love life, which are absolutely concealed. 50% is missing. Uh, I have some of the letters and diaries and so on, though most of them my family sent to the uh, to the British Library and, and her friend Eleanor sent. So there's an awful lot which isn't in the autobiography, which, which I hope will be in public domain very shortly. Now she came from uh, a family uh, that was tremendously interested in education. My grandmother set up uh, four schools in Pune starting in 1875. Um, the English-speaking school has just had its centenary. I went out... Oh, I'm sorry. That was the revival. I, I withdraw that. The, um, <clears throat> uh, an aunt revived the schools after they'd been closed. I, I was getting confused. In 1875, there was an English-speaking school set up. There was um, an infant school for um, uh, uh, Zoroastrians who had to learn English if they wanted to go on to the big school. And then there were free schools uh, uh, for poor Hindus speaking Marathi and for poor Muslims speaking Urdu. So she set up, uh, she set up four schools. Um, the the non-poor schools, uh, English speaking and um, Gujarati speaking, um, are still standing because they were in the grounds of the house that the family was renting. And I found to my great surprise last January that not only is the house standing and the school building standing, but um, although my family vacated the house a uh, hundred years ago, the family furniture's there, all the pictures, the grand piano, the grandfather clock, the, the beds, my grandparents' um, stained glass windows, because um, two careful ateliers took over the premises and thought this was just the right furniture for attracting um, hotel guests. So there it is in Pune. Uh, my grandfather was very keen that um, the seven daughters should go to university, but on the first two daughters, Bombay University refused. The first one he managed to get into university was Cornelia who matriculated at the age of 16. She'd been taught by her older sister, 
uh, age 16, um, my Aunt Mary. Um, and in spite of uh, great hostility from the non-Parsi students in her college, um, she passed out top of the Deccan College in Pune, which was a branch of Bombay University, in 1888 with one of the four firsts uh, from Bombay University for that year. And she had high hopes that that would mean she'd get one of the government scholarships to come and continue her studies in English literature in England. Uh, but after a wait, uh, it was refused on the ground that she was a woman and uh, it had not been envisaged that a woman could uh, qualify for the scholarship. However, a question was raised in Parliament about this uh, by Sir John Kennaway, descendant of um, the aide-de-camp of Cornwallis. Um, and the Secretary of State for India in 1888 uh, said, yes, indeed, uh, this had been the ground for refusing the scholarship, but at present, uh, the scholarship was not open to women. Well, that caused um, uh, some aristocratic ladies, chiefly Lady Hobhouse, who, whose husband um, was in the Privy Council, a lawyer who had been on the Viceroy's Council as the law member, it caused her to get up a scholarship among um, distinguished English women. Madeleine Shaw Lefebvre, the first principal of Somerville, was one of the ones. Florence Nightingale was another. Florence Nightingale, of course, though, though sick by that time, it, uh, had her special interest in sanitation uh, and nursing in India. And uh, she got the scholarship after, after, after the wait and came to England, uh, initially to London. Um, after some uh, deliberation, because uh, this subject would be closed to her and that subject would be closed to her, uh, her great hope of studying law didn't seem to be practical, so she came up to Somerville, which was then in its tenth year, um, to study English, which she had, of course, already studied and continued with English, though the Anglo-Saxon was new to her. And um, uh, that year, the second principal of Somerville had been appointed, the glamorous Miss Maitland, only 40, and uh, I know exactly what she wore because Cornelia tells us exactly what she wore, and she used to go skating in the winter on the, on the Charwell. Um, so she was quite a glamorous uh, second head for Somerville. Now, we've got photographs there. Um, if we could have the second and third pictures. Uh, this is from Cornelia's um, autograph book. And um, uh, Madeleine Shaw Lefebvre uh, did this uh, watercolour and, and signed it uh, of a place where she must have been staying in Farnham. It, it wasn't her home, I think, because it's stated as if she was just making a stay there. I mean, staying in the country for a week or so was very much a way of life, and Cornelia herself was always doing it. So there's what I take to be Madeleine Lachaud's uh, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, Shaw uh, own watercolour and, and her signature. And then the next one, uh, the second head of Somerville, principal of Somerville, Miss Maitland, uh, I've got her autograph on the next photograph, and a picture of the new West Building in Somerville. And I think Cornelia was one of the first batch of occupants because it was much better heated than the first building. The West Building was the second building. And it was thought she'd be cold 
um, <coughs> when she came from India. So there is what I taped with the West Building. I hope I haven't got that wrong. And there's Agnes Maitland's signature up at the top. Um, uh, she had a special resident tutor, um, a Miss Pater, uh, Emily Pater, I think, the, the, the sister of Walter Pater, who wrote Epicurus, uh, 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 Marias the Epicurean. Walter Pater was often in and out of the college, and his books went there in the end. And uh, so it was very residential, and, and they, they took their dinners in, in the West Building, with Miss Pater. And Miss Pater sat next to a different one uh, every evening. But in the fifth week of her first term, Benjamin Jurt came to the college and Miss Maitland summoned Cornelia um, and said uh, she was to meet Benjamin Jurt. And Benjamin Jurt um, invited uh, Cornelia to dinner in Balliol, but of course had to invite Miss Maitland because no woman student could go to Balliol College or any other men's college without a chaperone. And Miss Maitland had to be the chaperone at dinner, and indeed to many other things. She had to be the chaperone when Cornelia went to the dentist. You couldn't possibly yet let a young Somerville lady go to the dentist unattended. The principal of the college went. When uh, Cornelia went to have tea with um, my father's friends, her brother's friends in Christchurch, of course, Miss Maitland came along to tea in Christchurch too. That was one of the jobs of the principal. Cornelia insisted on wearing saris and insisted that when her sisters visited England, they would all wear saris. And she writes letters to them telling them exactly what saris to bring, uh, which ones for different seasons, how to get the hems made up in Pune before they arrive. And they did, for the rest of their lives, all wear saris, even though their mother had had them wear Western dress in Pune itself. That never happened in England, and indeed um, the seven sisters uh, increasingly wore saris all the time, e even the ones who stayed in Pune. It was Cornelia who insisted on that. Now, Joad came to take Cornelia to dinner and on to the Balliol concert about five times a term from then onwards. Um, he had actually given an organ to Balliol, additional to the one in the chapel, installed in the hall, it's still there, because he, he actually created the Balliol concerts, which are still flourishing. And he took her on his arm. And 30 years later, one of her fellow students said to her, we well, always used to be absolutely amazed, Cornelia, to see you going into Balliol Hall, um, sometimes Balliol on sometimes show it on her arm and sometimes the other way around, because we were all absolutely terrified of Jurt, and when summoned to breakfast, our teeth were chattering, and you never looked frightened at all. Well, she wasn't frightened. I mean, she really thought this was absolutely wonderful, and she never was frightened. Jurt um, introduced her to the, the leading Victorians. They really were the leading Victorians. Um, a little bit later, he sent Cornelia and, and her brother, my father, uh, to visit Tennyson shortly before his death, and Tennyson read them the unpublished version of what I imagine must have been his last poem, which was Akbar. He wanted to try it out on two young Indians to see whether he'd got any of the details wrong. Um, 
Cornelia was sent to, to visit Florence Nightingale, who remained very interested in the kind of uh, parts of the work that she was doing. Sanitation for Perdre machines uh, was a part of Cornelia's work. Uh, Jowett was a very, very big figure for her, but she was very fortunate also to be in Somerville because uh, Somerville was fighting this uphill battle for women students to be recognized. They'd only had 10 years of this. And Cornelia was coming from a family of educationists who believed in educating women for India. Her mother was very proud of having seven daughters and only one son. Um, she was coming from a family that believed in the education of women to a pioneering college, one of the first two in Oxford uh, to be educating women. And she benefited from the fact that in Oxford, um, there were people who'd been very supportive of Somerville. Max Mueller was actually one of them. So some of the people she met, and she was fated as if she was a celebrity because uh, the denied scholarship had been in the Queen magazine, which was very much a society magazine, and it'd been raised in Parliament. She was treated as a celebrity from the first. Uh, but many of these people were sponsors of, of Somerville. Mrs. Max Mueller and Max Mueller uh, were one such couple. She got to know Max Mueller terribly well, um, and he played hide-and-seek with her in the august surroundings of um, All Souls Codrington Library. I can't think of anywhere more august in Oxford. Perhaps I'm treading on toes. I'm not immediately thinking of anywhere more august. Um, there was a party to which she was invited uh, in, in the Codrington Library, and Max Muller said, come with me, and he took her up through some back bits of library, round some stairs and floors and so on, and finally they got to the very top balustrade and shouted, cooey, down. Um, he was very like that. Of course, Cornelia also knew Monia Williams, and uh, she used to go and visit Monia Williams in London, and Monia Williams was terribly bitter because he'd retired by that time, terribly bitter at the reception of Max Muller, so bitter that he absolutely refused ever to come to Oxford again. Um, not that Max Muller was in a great hurry to invite him, but he was invited to things, and he, he declined. And uh, I wish I'd known you were going to be talking about Monia Williams because Cornelia has a list of about 10 epithets for Monia Williams and another 10 epithets for Max Muller. Total contrast, bitterness versus sort of puckish, flamboyant imagination. Um, and she was very often at his house in, in Norham Gardens. Well, that was the Somerville connection rather than the Jowett connection, but most of the, uh, most of the Victorians she met were, were, I think, due to Benjamin Jowett. She had a policy, Cornelia, that she refused all invitations from younger men because, and at least this is my belief, I think it was because her oldest two sisters, the two who had been denied permission to matriculate at Bombay University, um, got taken by surprise by men who fancied them. Well, they, 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 were, they were very attractive and nice looking and articulate and so on. But who was going to marry them? This is what took them by surprise. You see, they weren't Muslim, they weren't Hindu, they were Parsi, but then they weren't Zoroastrian. 
Um, they, were, they were quite a dark shade of brown, and yet um, they spoke absolutely perfect English with the accent of the establishment and had English manners. So, you know, they were attractive, but who was actually going to marry them? The first two were caught by surprise, and Cornelia was absolutely determined that she would not be caught by surprise. And she tells us who our fa her favorite old men were, but all her friends were old men. The favorite three were Benjamin Jowett, um, Lord Hobhouse, who took her um, to the Privy Council and to the um, uh, uh, High Court's um, court to, to watch a trial and so on, and um, uh, Mount Stuart Grant Duff, who had been governor of Bombay and was now a big figure in the... In, in the um, a royal society before it had hived off the British Academy. These were her favorite three. And um, just in case there's anybody who feels this is a good policy, although I won't tell the story now because it's not an Oxford story, it isn't actually safe, I have to tell you, always to think that older men are safe, but that would be a later part of the story. She was safe with all the ones she met in Oxford. Um, after a year, she was suddenly told that if she really wanted to study law, she could give up English literature. Her English literature tutor, Dr. Wright, who was certain she'd get a first in Gothic and Anglo-Saxon, was absolutely devastated. But here she'd got her real chance. Joet had set up, with Sir William Markby, the reader in Indian law, a special course for her in law. And so she had got her heart's desire. You see, her ambition, as she tells it, and she does slightly improve the story in her different versions, but I don't find her telling absolute falsehoods. Her story was that when she was very young, a lady came in trouble to her mother, and this lady was in Perda. Well, Purda normally means not just a little veil across the face. I mean, a purda is actually a curtain. And women who went into purda, at least all her clients, when she finally got a job, um, just uh, never left the house again. You see, they were child brides. And if she was dealing with them, they were almost certainly widows. They might be child widows. They were child brides, a few married in infancy, then preferably married at any rate by four, failing that married by eight, or at the absolute extreme, married by 11. As soon as they were married, all education stopped. If they were widowed, they had tremendous property rights, far greater than any English women had at the time. But these property rights were on paper because they couldn't see a single lawyer. All lawyers were male. They couldn't see any male other than their husband who'd now departed if they were widows. So they were absolutely unenforceable rights. And she says that her mother said to all the girls, uh, not the first two girls, of course, who got caught by surprise, but to the next batch of girls, what are you going to do for India when you grow up? Because that's what she believed in, that girls could do something for India. And. Uh, she wanted to help these women because if they didn't have a woman lawyer, how could they exercise their quite extensive 
legal rights, extensive if they were widows. Of course, the, I'm talking only of a wealthy class, because only the wealthy people could afford this very expensive life of putting all their women in um, a, a separate quarters, the Zanana, uh, from which they would never emerge again. Or if they emerged, they would emerge in perded cars that came eventually to be perded cinemas, and Cornelia arranged there should be perded shopping days where there were curtains and veils, and she uh, created perder parties. I think her mother had had them too, and she got Vice Rain Lady Minto in 1905 to also give perded parties where you just put tents up so that no male can see the women coming. So there were things they could do. Uh, her work was going to be to increase the number of things that she could do, but she never persuaded any bank to allow, um, to allow perded women to have bank accounts. They had to keep any valuables they had under the floor. So they were very, very disadvantaged, even though many of them were very, very wealthy. This is what her life's ambition was, and she did, with great difficulty, uh, achieve it eventually. Uh, finally, it came to the time for her exam, and she had been switched to actually taking the Bachelor of Civil Law at Oxford, the first woman ever to sit. But the London examiner said he'd never examined a woman before, and he wasn't going to now. And uh, he wouldn't have her sit in the examination schools. Um, she must, uh, I mean, if she wanted to take it in Somerville, that was her affair, but then, of course, it wouldn't be official. He was not going to be the official examiner of a woman in the Bachelor of Civil Law. Bachelor of Civil Law then counted um, as a postgraduate degree, and many of the people who were taking it had been in chambers in London for some years. Whereas she had spent most of a year studying English literature still, and was trying to do the rest in, in two years um, from being an undergraduate. Well, on the eve of her exam, Joe had asked her, would you be content to just sit the examination in Somerville? And she said, no, I certainly would not be content. So Joe called um, the Oxford University Council together and it passed a decree saying Oxford University shall examine Cornelia Sarebchi. And so uh, she went the next day, and uh, now I've got a bit to read. So if you could take the uh, one bit of manuscript we've got there. Um, I, I haven't, I've only done one page of it, but I'll read a few little bits to you. She says, I followed the clerk, this is in the examination schools, uh, 1892. I followed the clerk to my place in the wake of the ancient fathers. Ancient fathers, of course, because they were all so much older than her. They'd been, they'd been doing law in, the, in, in London for years and years, some of them. I followed the clerk to my place in the wake of the ancient fathers to the funeral pyre. Almost a prescient reference to the cases of Satie she would have to deal with later. 90 years after it had been supposedly abolished. I was not at all frightened. I was quite calm outwardly, but very curious as to what would happen, half fearing I would have to scratch, i.e. retire because I knew nothing, half despairing. But I thought of the dear little service at St. Giles. She often went to church just outside Somerville at St. Giles's church, and of its being Whit Monday, and how my dear number 80 civil lines in Pune and other people were thinking of me. That little bit uh, is, on, is on there. 
And then uh, they were rather beastly to her, and she got a third. She was terribly disappointed. Of course, it wasn't very surprising trying to do the thing in two years. She wrote home, as Dick, her brother, and perhaps others will tell you, results are out. I am only third class, she underlines. This is a frightful disappointment, for I hoped for a second and should have got it, but for my abject stupidity. The world in general seeks to console me. They say I ought to be proud of it and all the rest, but I am conceited enough to feel it. There were no firsts, as the papers will have told you, and only two seconds, and is the hardest exam Oxford has, and the other candidates had worked for five years and upwards, but for all that I should have got my second. It was that brute of a Nelson, the London examiner, who lost me my last chances. He did not want me in at all, and made the fuss about the exam, which eventually gave him my decree. And when I was on for Viva, he bullied my life out. He was brutal enough to the men who shook before him, and he tried the same on me, together with horrid jeers. I turned and rent him before I left, for Professor Dicey had told me that something in his book on private int law, is that international law, was questionable. And I said in answer to a question which introduced this point, some writers think so and so, but it's wrong. He looked as if he'd like to kill me, but he only jeered and asked reasons, which having ready, I hurled at his head. And then, having got her third, Jert called her in once, and the master was so sweet, and he made me go to Balliol that night and insisted on taking me in and making me sit by him. And he told, told me he'd been talking me over with the examiners, etc., and they said I was very clever, and roughly speaking, uh, uh, that she had a wonderful memory for case law. Uh, this wasn't good for answering uh, examination questions at speed, but that wasn't what mattered. What would matter in later life was her outstanding memory for case law, which had amazed the examiners. Uh, I think it throws light on the enormous trouble that Jert took, he also took it over my father, enormous trouble Jert took over every single uh, one of his students. Um, um, there was a last meeting with Jert, just before she finally went down. The dear master took me into the study that wet night to have a quiet talk, this is for a second time. We discussed many things, and he gave me courage and counsel for the future. The things he said will always remain with me. Nothing put in his quaint way could fail. He sent two little notes, one to the India office and one to his friend Miss Nightingale, which, which led to the visit and led to the identification uh, of Florence Nightingale as the person to whom Jert had proposed. Uh, my aunt was the confidant who was first told that. And then I said a farewell, and the dear courtly old gentleman kissed my hand as he gave me his benediction. God bless you, dear. Alas, that I may never see him again in those distant days when I revisit Oxford haunts. Well, just to complete the picture, I think I ought to say what with that wonderful start um, she did do. It took her ten years to persuade uh, the British to give her a job. Maharajas were much more open-minded than the British. Maharajas didn't mind giving a woman a job, but they got her to defend an elephant. In one case, they got her to defend an elephant against the Maharaja who turned out to be the judge. Um, 
Uh, she thought this was frivolous. Um, she often thought things were frivolous. Uh, George Bernard Shaw offered to put a play on in the West End, if only she'd add something in about Lord Curzon. Well, it was a, a, a translation, I've got it on my desk, never published, a translation of, of Sanskrit, The Clay Cart. She was so angry with Bernard Shaw, she was only a student, for being so frivolous as to want something about Lord Curzon put into a Sanskrit play, that she threw it in the corner of the room, still on my desk. Um, well, anyhow, she, she, she had to meet the opposition of almost everybody. I mean, even the people who liked to say, no, look, my dear, uh, a woman can't be a lawyer. Don't ask us for that. Anything else you'd like. Curzon was very much against her. Um, um, with the Maharajas, it was useless because in the princely states, you couldn't get any evidence about women. Um, uh, the, 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 the men it was who knew whether their allowances had been illegally stopped and so on, and the men weren't going to speak. Um, you couldn't get the information in the princely states. It, it was in, the, in British India with widows where the British took over the administration, and that was the only way she finally decided she could get a job, a legal job. Uh, many times did the British promise her, pass one more exam and we'll make you a barrister. And every time uh, they violated it for 10 years. So for the last five of those 10 years, she invented this job of being the go-between between between the British and the Purdue machines, explaining each to the other and getting the Purdue machines their rights. She only got it for an Oxford reason. After everybody had said no for 10 years, it just happened that one of her Oxford sponsors, who'd been head of Merton College, a man called Broderick, one of the supporters of Somerville, had a brother who was made Secretary of State for India. Now, there's only one person superior to the Viceroy, and that's the Secretary of State for India. He fixed up that she'd get the job. He fixed it up that she'd get the job in Bengal, Orissa, Assam. Uh, that, of course, includes Curzon's East Bengal, uh, Bihar but quite a large chunk of India. And so she was appointed in 1904, after a 10-year campaign, very suddenly, just through a change of Secretary of State. And she had 18 years of absolutely amazing success. Um, um, she spent a lot of time being carried in a palanquin through the jungles to these distant palaces. In two cases, she rescued um, these young women, Purdue machines, uh, from attempted murder, at least she calls it attempted murder. She gained their confidence um, and slowly she began not to change their way of life. She didn't believe in converting people to Christianity. That was just for her Christianity. No, she believed in cherishing their beliefs, but just changing those beliefs which were causing them damage. So first she forced the Dufferin Hospital in Calcutta to train six of them as nurses, which was a revolution, really. These people who normally wouldn't leave the house. And then eventually, um, she got a very wealthy Purdue machine, a Muslim, um, to spearhead a social work. Social work not for Purdue machines any longer, but social work by these people who'd previously been in Purdue. Well, of course, they traveled out into the country or to the mill towns in, in, in perdered carriages with, with curtains, 
but they were actually doing social work. Uh, and so this, I think, was what she most wanted to do. She had 600 um, people under her care at any one time, but sometimes she went through three generations, so it was much more than 600. And her descriptions of their beliefs, their attitudes, very lovingly written, um, are a unique record, I think, and she wrote very prolifically. She retired in 1922. In 1923, she was able to collect her degree 30 years late. She was called to the bar in England. She returned for seven years to act as a barrister, but that was harder still because men who'd opposed her being any kind of lawyer liked even less the idea that they might be defeated in public by a woman. And so she met much stronger opposition then. Um, I knew her uh, in the 1940s, when of course she was confined by the war to England. She used to come down to Oxford where I was growing up and very, very much wanted me to be a lawyer. And some of the techniques she used I subsequently discovered were exactly things that Lord Hobhouse had done for her um, back in 1892, but I only discovered that quite recently. So towards the end, she was coming down to Oxford again. Well, that's a little bit of the story, the Oxford, some of the Oxfordy bit of the story. Thank you.